This morning we're reading Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the, throne for, the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, Peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. The 122nd Psalm, you can either look at the green sheet or open your Bible. Either one is okay. I'll be using a couple different translations today. Um, the, the 122nd Psalm is about corporate worship. It's about this morning, why we gather. Uh, and I love it because it is, it's following in light of the other two, where we started off in the 120th Psalm, and it was about repentance and the need to turn from sin and turn to God, away from the ways of the world and to the living King. And then we looked at last week, the 121st Psalm, and it, it revealed that God is the one who guides and protects and ensures that all the evils and all the troubles and all the turmoil we go through won't get inside and won't ruin us. He guards us from all evil. And then we get to the 122nd Psalm, and it's about worship. It's about corporate worship, not just, you know, we're to live every moment, every day worshiping. It's about this time set apart where people gather and, and sing and pray and proclaim the gospel. And, and I got to tell you, one of, one of the great afflictions of the pastoral office <laughs> is running into people. And you know, it's part of the default of being a pastor. They want to tell you why they're not, not in church or why they don't go to church. And, you know, in the short time I've been a pastor, about 10 years, I've heard lots of excuses. Many of you know them. You know, some people say, well, you know, my mom forced me when I was a kid and that's why I don't go. Or they'll say something like, uh, you know, the, the church is full of hypocrites. You know, implying, of course, they're not, right? Um, or they'll say, you know, I, I, Sunday's my only day to sleep in. The worst, well, the worst. And I'm a football fan. Is It's football season. I, I can't go. It's football season. You know, that's why there are VCRs and DVRs and all the other recording devices you have. I used to, I used to try in those moments to give, you know, a real good apologetic response from Scripture as to why their excuses weren't good excuses. And then what would happen is I'd usually get two or three more added on top of that. And so now when someone is explaining to me why they don't go to church, I listen. I do. I still listen. With a very straight face, I listen. And then I go home and I pray for them. And I pray that they would see the one reason to worship as a church, and that is because of who God is and what he's done to us through Jesus Christ. And so I just pray that, that, they would show, that God would show them through the Holy Spirit who he is and why they ought to desire. And then I pray that God would give them the desire. Because apart from that, whatever reason we gather is a bad reason. And so this morning, this psalm is about why he calls us, God calls us to do this week after week. Why? I mean, at some point in time, if you've been in church all your life, you had to stop and go, well, why this? Why, why Sunday? We're not going to talk about that today, but that's a whole other issue. But why do we meet, and why do we always sing, and why do we always pray, and why does a guy always talk? Why? This morning, the psalmist tells us why we do it, and then why the results that will come from it. And those are just the two questions I'm going to ask. Why do we do this? 
The psalmist tells us the answer and what should come from it. Because something should come from it. So let's take a look at number one. Why do we worship? The very first verse, the psalmist says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Now, this, this may be surprising in our culture, right? They're rejoicing that they get to go to worship together. You know, for those who fall in that category I just described, you know, mom made me go, hypocrites in the church, football Sunday. You know, I got direct TV and I can get all the games now at one time. This may, this may be a surprise to them. But here's, here's the catch. If you go out of tradition, if you're here because your parents want you here, if you're here because your spouse will treat you poorly if you don't go to church with him or her, if you're here because you want your, your children raised in a place where we instill values, you're here for the wrong reason and it will be short-lived Because the only reason, the only compelling reason to come on a Sunday morning or a Saturday evening and pray and sing and hear the gospel proclaimed is because you want to. Because you want to. The desire to be a part of a larger community that gathers to give praise and honor to the living God must be born out of a desire. A deep desire. You can't... You've tried this, maybe with someone you love. You've tried to arm wrestle and put them in a headlock, drag them to church. That, that'll last a little while, right, until they, they get bigger than you, possibly, or they you know, get a, a license in a car, and then they just leave. It cannot be forced. Worship cannot be forced. Now, what's fascinating, as unfashionable as it is today in our culture, it's remarkable to me that so many people still gather to worship. For whatever you say, well, some of those reasons are not compelling reasons. In 2010, let me just give you this to you. Americans reported of average weekly attendance to church, 43%. And that's up from 2008, which was 42%. So there's an incline. Not, not, I mean, there's an increase, not a decrease. So you have, on any given Saturday night or Sunday morning, you have more people gathering to worship God then watch football, watch golf, or be at their favorite fishing hole combined. In fact, it is, believe it or not, it is the single greatest act that we do as a people throughout the week. We gather to worship. So what I find more fascinating is that not the reasons people don't, but the reason that we do. The psalmist says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. This isn't some propaganda stunt. He's not trying to convince the Israelites they should, they should march into Jerusalem and worship God. He's expressing the true desire of those who gather, the 43% who gather voluntarily to worship the living God. And this is typical throughout Christian history. In fact, you will not find a Christian community without corporate worship throughout the history of the church. Can't find it. So why? I mean, why do we do this? You say, well, it's commanded. Okay, but that's an easy answer. That's true. But why do we do it? The author here gives us three compelling reasons as to the why. He says, we gather because this gives us a structure for life. This gives us an operating parameter on how we're supposed to live, who God is and who we are. Secondly, he says, we gather because this nurtures and deepens our desire to have a relationship with God. And then thirdly, as we'll see, it centers our attention on the decisions of God, the word of God. So let's look briefly at the why first. This corporate gathering gives us a structure. This may be a bit cryptic for you, but listen, verse 3 and 4. The psalmist says, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Weird sentence. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. Now, Jerusalem was the place they gathered. 
Feast of Passover, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. That's where they gathered. Three times a year. Spring, summer, fall. And they'd all go up to Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem that they recognized who they were. That God was a holy God. That they were a people set apart for His glory. They recognized this and they celebrated it. And they rejoiced in it. They recognized they had been forgiven. That their sins had been clean. They recognized that they had entered into a covenant. And so when it says in verse 3, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That's a hard translation. Let me give it to you from the New Living Translation better. Jerusalem is a well-built city knit together as a single unit. Now, either this, this songwriter was stumped on lyrics and he's looking for Phil here. So he looks around and goes, hey, this is a nice city. It's compacted together. Or he's trying to actually communicate something to us. I'm betting on the latter. He actually was using the city of Jerusalem as a metaphor for the people. And when it says there was, they, the, the city was knit together as a single unit, what he's saying is this. It was an architectural metaphor saying all the stones fit together. There were no major gaps. There was nothing left over. It fit together as a perfect unit. And the people who gather to worship God are to come together as a single unit as well. That we have a structure that shows us how to live life. As a people, as a community, that all the pieces of the masonry fit harmoniously together, all brought together by God, all individually equipped to come together and make this glorious structure. One translation put, at unity with itself. So what was true of the architecture in Jerusalem was to be true of the people who gathered to worship God. And then in verse 4 it says, that is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. Twelve tribes... And by the time the psalmist writes, 12 distinct people groups. Some so much so where their language is conflicted. 12 different groups of people. Different backgrounds, different educational experiences, different upbringings, different parents, different cultures coming together and to worship God becoming one. Where all the differences faded away and they recognized they all had one thing in common. The living God. They were his chosen people. So too with us. I mean, even in a church this size, this small, you can look around and so many of us come from radically different backgrounds. Some of you were born on farms. Some of you were born in inner cities. Some of you were raised by parents who didn't make a lot of money. Some parents made a lot of money. Some of you are well-educated. Some not so much. And yet when we gather here, all those distinctions pale in comparison to the unity that we have as a people coming before God to worship Him. One people. All the quarrels become insignificant because we realize we fit together and we become that framework that defines our life. Who we are, who God is, who we are before God in Jesus Christ. And that framework is what we need. And so week after week after week, we gather to remind ourselves, that's right. I am part of a larger whole. I am part of God's chosen people. I was set apart. This is my family. And without that structure, without that weekly reminder... You can get sideways fast. In fact, some of you were raised in homes without much structure. And your life went in a direction, probably before Christ came in, that was not honoring to him and destructive for you. I had a friend, a very close friend, um, growing up, whose, he, his parents were divorced. He was living with his mother and his stepfather. And his mother and his stepfather worked full time. So he was a latchkey kid. Never saw his folks. 
Now, his house was on the way home. You know, so when I would go to school, I'd pass his house. And, then, and this guy, so as a, as, as, a, as a young man growing up in a family where my parents were, were happily married and there was stability there, this guy's life, to me, was the best life possible. So he'd get up in the morning and he'd have a Coke and Ho-Ho's for breakfast. You know, so to me, that's like, this is the life that I want. Any movie he wanted to watch, he got to watch. He never had a bedtime. In fact, he didn't have a time he had to get up. I'd go into his house and I'd say, hey, we got to go to school. He's like, yeah, yeah. And he'd grab a Coke and he grabs some Ho-Ho's. I'm like, oh, you know, I mean, malt balls was his daily diet. And that's what he ate for lunch. And I thought at the time, his lack of structure was the life I wanted. And really, it was just the opposite. It was catastrophic for him. Um, so much so that now he is divorced. He has three children that he rarely sees. And it's terrible. It's terrible. And so he lacked structure, real structure that his life fit in that he could make sense of. One of the reasons we gather weekly is so that structure, as God's people set apart, that we have a God and we are his people, gives us the direction, shows us how we're supposed to live, reminds us weekly, yes, there is structure to life, and you have a God, and he set it in place. And so we come and we gather for that purpose as a people compactly built together. I love that, that we fit together. Reminding ourselves of, that God is a God who, who saved us through Christ and loves us radically and has redeemed us. So one of the reasons you gather is because we need to keep the structure in place. And we do it weekly. And we do it weekly because if time passes, we, we forget and we lose track and the structure gets really loose. Another reason that we gather is that we gather to deepen the relationship with God. I mean, this is fundamental. Most of us say, I I want a deeper, more intimate personal relationship. And so we gather corporately. Look at verse 4. It says, that is where the tribes go up, Jerusalem, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. You know what that means? They were worshiping God because they were commanded to. The statute, the command, to obey. You say, well, that, that doesn't sound that all that relational. But we, we, we miss something here. Look, again, verse 4, and, and another translation says, It was there to give thanks. They worshipped to give thanks to the name of the Lord. They were commanded to. But why? Because in our right minds, when, we're not, when our thinking's not convoluted by sin, what we ought to be doing every moment of every day is praising God and giving thanks, right? I mean, that's what makes sense. That's, that's actually the reasonable, logical uh, wise response to seeing God clearly in who we are in Christ. Right? I mean, you're dead in your sins, and Christ makes you alive. So what do you do? You give Him thanks and praise. And then He gives you the Holy Spirit. And, and every moment of every day, He gives you the faith to live by faith. And that's reason to give Him thanks and praise. And you live your whole life pursuing Him and loving Him and growing in Him and going through all the suffering and the trials. And on your deathbed, you, you have the promise That death cannot hold you. That sin cannot hold you. And so you know that when you leave this place, you're going to come into his presence and you're going to see Christ face to face. And for that, you give him thanks and praise. Every moment of every day should be a time you say, praise God. No matter how difficult things are, praise God. Thank you, God. That is the right response. Augustine, one line, ready? A Christian should be a a, a hallelujah. An hallelujah from head to toe. All the time. Thanks be to God. Praise be to God. Now, we say it flippantly. You know, how, oh, you know, how you, uh, things are well. Well, praise be to God. Pray. No, really, praise be to God. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in my life. That's seeing reality clearly. 
Right? That is the right, reasonable, logical response. God made you. God redeemed you through Christ. God holds you. He provides for you. And he will deliver you. Well, I mean, what else could you say other than thank you, Lord, and praise you, Lord? And so we can go one step further. When we praise God, we are in touch with the core reality of who we are as people. The very core of our being is to be in right relationship with God. And so when we praise him through Christ, we're saying, I see myself now in you. I see you clearly. I see myself clearly. And so praise, when we pray, when we get together like this and we praise God, we are more right on with who we are as a people than at any other time. The core being of who we are as redeemed people in Christ. Now very often, we say something like this. It would be dishonest for me to go to a place of worship and praise God when I don't feel like it. Are you ready? Now listen. I'm going to say that again because some of you are struggling with this. I don't want to go because I don't feel like it. And if I go, I'll be a hypocrite. I'm going to say this lovingly. The psalmist, a little bit more so. The psalmist says, I don't care whether you feel like it or not. He says in verse 4, Praise the name of the Lord according to the statute, the command given to Israel. Now, if you're listening closely, aren't you contradicting yourself, Pastor? Because you just said that we worship because we want to. I did. And I'm also telling you, the scriptures say, we are commanded to. So if you don't feel like it, the Bible doesn't say, if you don't feel like worshiping God, don't worship God. In fact, it never says that. So how do we straighten this out? Feelings can be great liars. Now listen closely. I know this is going to touch our raw nerve in our culture. Feelings can be great liars. Feelings can be very good indicators and reliable in other things. In, the, in faith issues, they are highly unreliable. In issues of faith and obedience to God, feelings, probably more than anything else, can lead us astray. If Christians worshipped only when we felt like it, there'd be very little worship. Feelings are important in other things, not so much in matters of faith. Paul Schreier in his book, The Word God Sent, he said it pointedly. He said this, the Bible wastes very little time on the way we feel. (laughs) And that's true. I mean, how much does the Bible talk about the way you feel? The cultural mantra, and this is our struggle, is that feelings, right, emotions, trump truth and reason. It trumps reality. And so, instead of being the age of reason, we are now, one author actually wrote a book called The Age of Sensation. And he's right. That we make decisions in life, worship or not worship, church or no church, based upon how we feel. Not necessarily on what is true. And we go one step further. We foolishly think that if we don't feel something, that it can't be authentic. That if I'm not feeling this way, then it can't be real or of substance or something I should do. And so we just don't do it. The culture, you know some of the mantras, it's simple. If you feel like it, then do it. If you don't, then don't. And someone says, I have to be true to my my feelings. Not true to truth, or even wise in truth. So the Bible reveals this. Now listen closely. Because you catch this, it'll help all of us a lot. The Bible says that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Did you get that? I'm not talking about acting as in performance. I'm talking about behavior, things that we do. How many of the Israelites 
at the Feast of Pentecost, which was in the height of the summer, said to themselves, Really? We just got back. It was Passover. We just got home. They were busy people. They had families to raise. They had fields to tend to. They had, they had work issues. They had community issues, right? And here it is, Pentecost, early summer, and they're going to go back? they got to go back and they got to worship again. They had ample excuses not to go, but they got something we did not. Instead of saying, you know what, I don't feel like it. My kids are sick. The fields need to be attended uh, to. They said, you know what, God calls us to this because he knows what is best. And so they said, we're going, to, we're going to obey and we're going to engage in a behavior that will change the way we feel. Rather than, based upon my feeling, I will or I will not engage in the behavior. And so one of the things that we do when we gather here, when we faithfully gather and we worship corporately as a body, we're saying, I'm coming before God in obedience to God to know Him, to hear from Him, to to express my love for Him so that He will grow my desire to worship. It's the exact opposite. In our culture, you feel like it, you worship. In fact, our culture, even in the church, it teaches, listen, that we gather here to express our feelings for God. The Israelites, just the opposite. They gathered acts of obedience so that God might increase their love for him. Do we see that? I know this is a point that some of you are going to struggle and say, I don't like it. Another quote, better, ready? This author said, corporate worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. Corporate worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in the act of worship. It's the exact opposite. We gather to hear from God and have him grow that love for him. He grows it and changes the way we feel. So we gather to get a structure. We gather to nurture the need of having a relationship. And the third reason we gather is for attention, our attention to be refocused on the word of God. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, there, this is in Jerusalem, the thrones of judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. We gather, the judgment, this is the place where God's decisive word goes out to make things right, to straighten up a broken world, where his word goes out. And it's not, this is the good judge, right? These are not descriptive terms. His word goes out as it does this morning in hundreds of thousands of churches. It goes out. And it's their active words. They're words that bring love and words that bring healing and words that bring salvation to people who are lost. Their word, his word comes as a good judge sends to, to overcome those who are afflicted. To, to, um, to bring discernment to those who are struggling. And he brings the word to us and it refocuses our attention back to him. He sets love in motion with his own word. And what I love you know, in, in a simple service like we have, in our, and compared to some other churches, it's simple. <laughs> but I love it because we gather and, and we pray. And in the prayers, you have the word of God. And then we sing. And for those of you who are astute at all scripturally, we sing. And most of our songs are from hymns that are written from scripture. And so we sing his word. And of course, when I'm preaching and teaching, it's from his word. In Sunday school, it's from his word. And so his word is brought forth to us in this time, and we are called to refocus our attention, to hear from him. Not to hear from me, or to hear from Jim. To hear from him, what he has to say to us. And and no place do we do this better than corporate worship. 
Does it mean you can't hear from at home? Of course not. But you, if you're this, if you're the of the home worship movement now, and there, we have friends, family family friends that they say we're just going to stay at home, and he opens his Bible with his wife and his two kids, and and they worship at home, and they study their Bible, and they sing a few hymns, and they pray, and they say this is sufficient. There's real errors with that. One of which is this: his ignorance, his biases, his upbringing. All those things will filter into the means by which he worships. Apart from a collective whole, there's no way to check that. Not only that, God calls people together. Not just family, people together to gather and worship like this. And you come, you come to hear the word. I pray. I pray you come to be fed by it. I pray that you come to sing it out, that you sing it, that you come to pray. You know, I spend, I spend about six days during the week, you know, struggling with faith and struggling with doubt and struggling with hope and struggling with you. And I come and I bring that hopefully in a manner that you can actually hear it and go, I hear God. And so millions of people at this very moment are doing this exact same thing. Just like this. Why? Because they need structure in their lives. They need boundaries. Why? Because they know that this is a place, more than any other, where God will nurture that desire in their heart for Him. That He will give them the emotional desire for Him. We do it because we're commanded to. And because the command is so good for us. And we gather here even this morning to hear His Word. There's good reason why 43% of Americans gather to worship God week after week. So you say, all right, <laughs> what's this to come from it, though? I, okay, I got my structure good. It'll increase my love for God. That's great. I hope that's what happens, right? But what will actually be the product of it? Will, will I change? Will I change? And the last part of the psalm, the answer is yes. The real results from real worship. The most faithful, even in our church, we'll just take Camden Avenue Baptist. If you're one of those people that you're, you're, you're the most faithful in corporate worship, You're here on Wednesday for prayer. You come here and you attend Bible study and you're here during this time. It only amounts to about 2% of the total week. It's a small fraction. 2% of your total week spent in corporate worship. So the reasonable question is, how could 2% really change or impact the 98% of the rest of my week? When I'm at work, when I'm at home, when I'm struggling. How can 2% or less impact the rest of my life? The psalmist says, not only will it impact it, but it can radically change it. Look at the last part of this this passage. Verse 6 and following. The psalmist says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Us gathering together, this is not the end of it. It's supposed to bring us back into a focus, who God is, hearing his word, being nurtured in that need for him, and then it's supposed to overflow throughout the week. It's supposed to move into our families and into our workplaces and into our relationships. And three things will come. Prayer, peace, you saw that word, and lastly, from the last verse, prosperity. Prayer, peace, and prosperity. Three Ps. Easy to remember. Ready? The first thing that will come from when we gather is prayer. In fact, in in verse 6, the transition, and it is a transitional verse, where it says that that there will be prayer that will come out of this. In my studies this week, and I found this fast, that's not the normal word for prayer. I thought, why isn't that? In the Hebrew, that's not the normal word they use for prayer in a worship setting. 
In fact, it literally, it just means to ask. The word in the Hebrew is sha'al. And it is a common word used not on worship days for you to just ask something. Like if you were sitting at a table and you said, you're asking for a piece of bread or asking for directions because you're lost. That's the type of word. And the transition that the author is telling us is that from our time together, it should move us into a continuous, perpetual state of prayer. Where you don't just pray on Sundays, or you don't just pray before your meal. That we're always praying. Because prayer is a product of our time together. Now, it's not an improper translation. Because when you're praying, and you're supplicating, you're asking, right? So it's not improper. But what it shows us is that it's not the type of prayer that takes place just when we gather and we do formal corporate worship. So the question is, how would our gathering together produce in me a desire to pray throughout the week? How would this become a catalyst for continuous daily prayer? And the answer is simple. This doesn't satisfy. In fact, if this is all you have in your time of worship for God, then you know right now, I need to say no more. This doesn't satisfy. This is not sufficient. To relate to God, a living, intimate God who wants to talk to you and communicate with you and walk with you on a moment-by-moment basis, this is not sufficient. An hour, an hour and 15 minutes a week? Come on, you got to be kidding me. So what happens is the corporate worship service whets your appetite. We pray, we sing, we proclaim the gospel, and you say, I want more. That's good. I want more of God. I want to hear from Him more. I want to talk to Him more. I want to know Him more. And so you do. You pray. And you study. And you gather together. And you fellowship together because you want more. I was trying to think of an example. And one that came to mind, I shared with with you briefly. Last spring, I had a chance to to go camping with Joshua, my eight-year-old boy. And it's the first time that we'd ever been camping alone, just the two of us. So there were no distractions from his other two brothers. It was me and Joshua, time together. And we went out, and we took my dad's boat, and we, we did some fishing. We didn't catch anything, but we tried to fish. And uh, we, we hung out, and we, we went on some great hikes, and we saw God's beautiful creation. We saw two bald eagles, and we, made, we whittled some sticks that turned into lightsabers, and we battled. You know, and I was Darth Vader, and I always beat him because I'm stronger. Um, <laughs> We, we roasted marshmallows, and it was just, we were there two nights, three days. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. And as we're getting ready, he goes, I don't want to go. And I said, I don't want to go either. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I don't want to go either. Now, something fantastic happened. We got home, and schedule resumes, right? School starts back up. But for about two to three weeks after that time, he was at my hip. He, he was always there. I said, I, you know, I had to go up to the store or something. Boom. Uh, can I go, Dad? Yeah, of course you can go. So he wanted to go to the grocery store. He wanted to come down to the church. He wanted to be everywhere I was. Why? Because that time we had that we nurtured together didn't satisfy him. It increased his desire to spend more time. So it was this constant conversation. And for three to four weeks after our time together, he'd come up to me and he'd whisper in my ear. I'd be sitting at the desk studying and he'd come and go, wish we were at the lake. Wish we were at the lake. I kept saying, wish we were at the lake. I'm like, so do I. When we worship like this, it should not, it just should wet our appetite. So that during the week, we keep going back to God and go, wish we were at the lake. Wish we were at the lake, Lord. I want to hear you. I want to talk to you. I want you to talk to me. I want to know you. So this cannot satisfy. In fact, if you, if you approach Sunday worship corporate time as the means to bring that, you will be constantly frustrated and always disappointed because this just sets us off into the week 
to hear from God and to love God and to enjoy it. So one result will be prayer. It should be. And if it's not, then ask God to give you that desire to pray. A second thing that will come, and you heard this in the last passage, this word again and again and again, multiple times, peace. One of the products, the should-be, ought-to products of corporate worship is peace. Not much peace in our lives. Not much peace in this church. But it should be when we gather and we pray and we sing to the Lord and we open up his Bible and we proclaim the gospel, peace should come. Now, this is, this is not, for those of you who are older, this is not the 1960s tie-dye shirts peace. This is not the American version of peace. This is peace from Scripture. And the word that you probably are, you know this word in the Hebrew, it's shalom, right? It's used as an expression amongst Jews even to this day. That the peace of God be with you and also with you. It is a word that I would need ten sermons. Easy. I would need ten sermons to really develop. It is a word that is so deep, it would be like saying, you know, to, do, to, to go to a Bible dictionary and look up the word shalom and understand what it means would be saying, well, show me your social security number and I'll know who you are. Right? It is a deep word. I'm, I'm going to just try briefly. Ready? Shalom, peace. It gathers all the aspects of wholeness and goodness that are the direct result of God working out his will in your life and in the world. Completeness, in fact, it literally means to be complete or to be whole, to not be broken. Better put, shalom is the work of God that when complete, releases streams of living water in us. As he puts us back together, As he reshapes us and transforms us, living water, radiant glory will be the result of shalom, of peace in our lives. In fact, Christ made this clear. John 14, Jesus says, peace, shalom, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The peace the world offers, it's transient, it's temporary, and it never, ever really brings that peace that we want. Only God can bring that. Real shalom. A restored relationship, and that's, of course, where it starts. We are ultimately broken because our relationship with God is broken. When Christ came, he came to bring restoration with God and then with one another and with his creation. To bring that healing, to, to, to bring back a wholeness to that which was torn apart. The description of Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall would have been shalom. Right? Because the relationship with God wasn't broken. Their relationship with one another, husband and wife, not broken. Their relationship with animals and creation, unbroken. It would have been shalom. He said, what was life like? Shalom, peace. All the way around. And then we get to fall. And everything breaks. With God, with one another, in marriages, with our children, with the animals. Everything breaks. And so Christ comes, and he comes as what? He comes as the prince of Peace, shalom. You say, well, that's, a, that's a nice Christmas definition of Jesus. No. He came as the prince of shalom. The one who, in fact, every time Christ entered into a ministry of healing, whenever he gave sight to the blind, whenever he healed the crippled, whenever he brought someone back from the dead, whenever he called someone to him, he was exercising shalom. He was making right, making complete, making whole that which was broken. It's fantastic. And word spread everywhere. This guy, he's a shalom maker. He's a peacemaker. Isaiah identified him as the prince of peace. You remember when John the Baptist was in jail, waiting his execution? 
He's getting a little nervous, right? Kingdom of heaven is supposed to be coming. The Messiah is supposed to be coming. And he sends his disciples to go to Christ. Remember this? And ask what question? Are you the one? Because <laughs> I'm going to die here soon. And I really want to know, are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Listen to this from Luke 7. John the Baptist. I'm sorry. John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus. And they said, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? And they're going to go tell John this. Jesus' answer is fantastic. He doesn't say, I am the great I am. I am the beginning and the end. Yeah. He doesn't do this. Do you know what he says? Verse 22. This is his reply. He says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus knew that John would know that was confirmation. The Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. He would bring healing. He would bring restoration. He would take the curse and reverse it. He would make what was broken right. And so he gave the best answer. I am the Prince of Peace. I do bring shalom. And he brought it then and he brings it now. And it should be for us. If something comes out of our time together, it should be peace. It should be real shalom that comes into our lives that we experience God completing us, God restoring us as we confess our sins and our relationship is made right with God and then to one another. Real shalom in our relationships with one another as we confess our sins and as we make things right and as we work to that end. Shalom that then flows out of the church and brings healing to the world where we truly minister to the poor and the weak and the suffering, where we bring the gospel of grace to the lost. Where shalom makes its way out. Where we listen to the friend who is hurting. Where we care for those who are not cared for. Where we help those who are now hopeless. And we bring them hope. Where we bring the gospel to the lost. Where we bring justice to the oppressed. And it overflows. Now, I'm not talking that these silly little, you know, random acts of kindness. That's not shalom. Shalom is a, a deliberate, intentional outflowing of the, of the peace you have to make things right. To work on fixing a broken world. Broken relationships with your wives, husbands. If you've sinned against your wife, bring shalom into the marriage. Confess the sin and make things right. Parents, if you screwed up with your kids, bring shalom into the relationship. Confess it, turn, make things right. Friends, church members, brothers and sisters, listen. If you have aught against your brother and sister, don't leave this day, tonight. Bring shalom to it. To your brother, to your sister. Bring the healing power of Christ. You have it. We're experiencing it now. Share it. How powerful is it? In Mark chapter 5. There was a woman who had bled for 12 years. 12 years of bleeding. Now, in that culture, that, I mean, that would be bad, ladies, right now, right? In that culture, unclean, untouchable, unmarriable. I mean, a stigma on her. She went to several doctors, according to Scripture, and they, they, they were terrible with her, and her situation got worse, not better. And she heard of Christ. Listen to this. This is from Mark 5. She heard about Jesus, and she came up behind him, and in the crowd... She just touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. If I can just 
Not even his body. But I can just touch his clothes. Immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. What had happened? Shalom, peace, restoration. The healing power of God went to her. She received peace. And for the first time in 12 years, she wasn't bleeding. She wasn't a stigma. She didn't have to go to a physical doctor and be abused. Christ brought her real peace, real shalom. And it's to go out. A product of our time together, prayer, peace, and lastly, prosperity. Look at verse 7. The NASB is better, so I'm going to read from it. The NIV is a little sketchy on this. NASB, may peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. Prosperity, the word in the Hebrew is shalva. Now, it's not our prosperity. It's not having that insurance policy or that bank account or lots of guns in your house, right? I'm not talking about that type of prosperity, okay? This is very different. The root word, the root meaning of prosperity scripturally, it's leisure. It's quietness. What? You're probably thinking, I don't have much prosperity in my life. Leisure Quietness, And it means this, in its most fundamental state, a relaxed stance of, of the one who knows that everything is right in God. It's that, that stillness and that quietness and that relaxed place, that disposition where you go, you know what? I have a God who's over me, who's beside me, who is in me, and who is for me in Christ. And therefore, all is well with my soul. I, I can go through life. And, and I will go through the hard times and the good times, and it's not going to rock me because there's a stillness and a quietness in my soul. I know who God is, and I know who I am before Him. In Job chapter 3, after our beloved friend lost his family, his livestock, his property, and then his health. Remember, Satan came back a second time and touched him? He says in chapter 3, verse 26. He says, I have no peace, I have no shalva, I have no prosperity. And he's not talking about that he lost his life. He's saying, I have no peace, I have no rest in my soul, only turmoil. Prosperity is the posture or disposition of a life turned to God. In our culture, I use that word, and you think what? It's all external. It's academic, it's financial, it's relational, it's status, right? The proper, prosperous person written up today in the, in the San Jose Mercury would be this. This person who goes to the prestigious school, the prestigious school, the most prestigious school, and they get the grades and they graduate and they get the job and they make six figures. As a 22-year-old making six figures or more. Prosperity. And then they find that perfect spouse, the perfect mate, and they get married. And they have seven kids. Today it would be two, right? Or actually just one. And they'd have a nanny. But anyway, they get the house, 6,000 square feet. And they got the car. And they live this life. They retire early on a golf course. And they play golf every day. Prosperous. Scripture says, terrible. Not at all. That person may or may not be. The Bible says, you are prosperous. If your heart has been turned toward God. You are prosperous. If in the depth of your soul, you're relaxed, you have a disposition of quietness. Why? Because you know that Christ has already won and that you're secure in him. The prosperous man, the prosperous woman is comfortable with a cross, a bloody cross, 
being at the center of all human history. The prosperous man or woman is comfortable with Jesus Christ being Lord and Savior. Comfortable. Not agitated. But that's how I want it. That brings peace, a quietness, a shalva to my soul. Recognizing I'm not God. (laughs) There is a God. And he created these laws for me to submit to because that's good for me as well. In loving obedience. And the prosperity comes when not only do you see who God is and see who you are, but you see his commands and you want to obey them. You're no longer striving and kicking against the oxen. The yoke is easy. The burden's light. You're going in the right direction. And there's, there's shalva. There's prosperity there. Not money. Maybe, maybe not. Not career. Maybe, maybe not. Not marriage. Not kids. Maybe, maybe not. It's the depth of knowing who you are before God in Jesus Christ. Leisure. Every moment of every day. Living by the mercy and grace of God himself. This should be... Look at verse 9. It says, for the sake of the house of the Lord of God, I will seek your prosperity. This should be a desire for ourselves. And this should be the desire for all those that we know. I mean, we live in an anxious, ridden culture. Psychologically, more meds for anxiety and depression than any other meds. And God's saying, I have prosperity to give you that will get you med free. I have shalom, a peace to give you that will settle your heart once and for all so that you can go through life not a schizophrenic mess but at peace with prosperity. So when we gather together something that should come from this is prayer, continuous prayer. Shalom, peace, real peace where you are being made whole and you make others whole and prosperity where there's a stillness and a quietness and a leisure in your soul because you know God is over you, in you, through you, and for you in Jesus Christ. Now, if you leave here and you say, that's all fine and dandy, and I believe the the pastor says that. I do. I don't disagree with you theologically. But that's so hard. You're telling me to pray, pastor, and when I pray, I'm in spiritual warfare, and I don't want to pray. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like praying by myself. I don't feel like praying with my family, and I certainly don't want to gather here and pray with my brothers and sisters. Spiritual warfare. You ever wonder why it's so hard to pray? People say, I, I, I can't go on Wednesday night. Why? It's hard. Why? It's warfare. Warfare. That's not easy. I have never heard of warfare described as something very simple. Peace. In the midst of brokenness. I say to you, peace be with you. If you're in the Catholic Church, I say, peace be with you. And you say, also with you. Right? We just change people. A little shalom, give me some shalom back, right? You say, I, I, my life's broken. My marriage is broken. My kids are broken. My community's broken. My job is broken. You tell me to have peace in the midst of absolute brokenness. It's like a pipe dream, and I, I agree. And then, how dare you, pastor? You throw in prosperity, an inner quietness. I wake up at 4 a.m., and I have heart palpitations. I don't even know why. My stomach hurts all day long. I have to take meds. How dare you tell me to pray and have peace and prosperity in the midst of all this? And if I left you there, you have every right to say, how dare you? But Jesus Christ, he lived this out for us. So Jesus Christ was being obedient to God. Listen. He was being obedient to God in the command to gather to worship. On the Thursday night, before, on the night that he was actually betrayed, 
Jesus Christ went into Jerusalem to worship, to celebrate the Passover. And he gathered his disciples. He said, go get the upper room. We're going to have the Passover meal. And so he's obeying the command. And what does he do? It's fantastic. You want to see the scripture born out in the life of Christ? What does he do? They leave the upper room. And where does, what does he immediately want to do? He wants to pray. He says, you know, my gathering together with my, my fellow disciples, I, I want to pray. I want to, I want to hear from you. So he takes them and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays to God. That's the natural response of corporate worship. And this is his prayer. Listen, he says, he fell down on the ground and he prayed, if it's possible that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So he prays. He, you know what he's praying? He's saying, God, if it's possible, don't take my peace and don't take my prosperity. Don't take my shalom and my shalva. That's what I'm asking. If there's any other way that we can do this, that we can save mankind without you taking that from me, then, then let's do it that way. But, more importantly, whatever you want first. Whatever you desire first. And he was saying, I have shalom because I'm complete in you. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He was complete with the Father. There was no brokenness in the relationship. And he's saying, I don't want to lose that. And Jesus Christ was the most prosperous man to ever live. How so? Never has a man walked the face of the earth with great, greater quietness and relaxation in his soul because he knew that God was with him and for him and in him. He knew that too. And so he, he praises God, don't take my peace and don't take my prosperity. But whatever your will, let it be done. Because in that moment, in that garden, he was catching a glimpse that in order to do what he had been sent to do, in order to redeem us, he had to go to the cross and he had to lose his peace and he had to lose his prosperity forever. He knew that. And so this is all coming into focus for him. And so Jesus Christ, you say, this is hard for me to do. I would say this, apart from Christ, it's impossible to do. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's impossible in Christ. Because when we focus on who Christ is and what he's done, then the prayer comes, then the peace comes, and the prosperity comes as well. Why? Because Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he didn't just, he didn't just lose physical shalom. I mean, he was torn to pieces, literally, torn to pieces. His body was broken, his blood was shed. He lost physical completeness, wholeness. He lost physical shalom. But worse than that, he lost spiritual shalom. He lost spiritual peace because for the first time, in all of eternity, catch this for a minute, his relationship with the Father was going to be broken. For the first time, his Father was going to forsake him instead of comfort him. His Father was going to turn away from him instead of holding him. His Father was going to say, I'm not going to hear you, son. And that's what he experienced. When he climbed on the cross, for the first time, the most prosperous man with the greatest quietness in his soul experienced lack of prosperity. Why? I mean, hit the life he lived, he should have been exalted, right? Instead, he was killed. But not only that, he lost the prosperity of having the Father answer his prayers. He experienced this in total, complete loss of shalom, complete loss of prosperity for only one reason. And that's his radical love for us. So that you and I could sit here. We could, we could drive in our air-conditioned cars on a Sunday morning. 
And we could come here and we could pray to him. And we could sing to him. And we could proclaim his name. And we can have real peace and real prosperity that he rightly deserved because he gave it to us. When he went to the cross, he said, I will sacrifice my peace and my prosperity for yours, for me. And that's exactly what he did. So if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, and you say, I don't know this peace and I don't know this prosperity, then this morning learn it. Learn it. Gain the wisdom of the peace and prosperity that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. When these truths, these radical truths of not only the offer, which is real peace and real prosperity both now and forever, when you get that's a real offer, but when you see that it came through the sacrifice of Christ, through his body and blood, then your heart will change. Then you'll come and you'll worship in spirit and truth. You'll pray in spirit and truth. You'll sing in spirit and truth. You'll hear the word of God proclaimed in spirit and the truth. And this will whet your appetite so that you'll leave here and you'll pray tonight. And you'll wake up tomorrow morning praying. And you'll open your Bible and you'll say, speak to me more, God. And you'll gather with brothers and sisters and you say, let's talk more about this God of ours whom we love. Let's talk. Let's meet. Let's serve. And it will go out in this community. It will go with you to work. It will go with you to your families. It will go with you to school students and to Shalom will move through you. And you'll become the salt and the light. That's how it's supposed to work. (laughs) Prayer, peace, and prosperity. Do you know them? Do you have them? If not, do not leave this corporate worship today without asking. Like you'd ask for a piece of bread. Doesn't have to be fancy. You don't got to go into a 20-minute, you know, uh, uh, Latin, complicated prayer. Just ask. Just ask your father for shalom. Ask him for prosperity. Ask. He'll give it to you. Let's pray. Father, psalms like this make me wonder whether or not we have any clue of what your peace is like. I know how hectic my life is. I know the noise and not the quietness. I know the brokenness and not the wholeness. I know my brothers and sisters feel the same. And so I pray, Lord, that this would not be a sermon received poorly where we just get discouraged. And we say, this is not possible. But instead, Lord, we would focus our eyes on Christ. And we would see that by his work, that what he did... When he gave up his peace and prosperity, he didn't just give it up. He offers it to us in full. And because he went to hell and because he was forsaken by the Father, we can have life forever. Father, make this teaching real for us. Impress the 122nd Psalm on our hearts. Cause us to memorize it. And then sing it to ourselves. So that we can go day in and day out with the peace that transcends all understanding and the prosperity of knowing that you are in us and over us and for us in Christ. I pray this for my brothers and sisters here. I pray this, Lord, for every saint that you've gathered this day throughout the world, all of your churches throughout the world, that they would know this day your peace 
and your prosperity that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his holy name. Amen.